Hello, everybody. This is Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me today for Radio Lux Lucid. This is episode number 35. And the title of this episode is Just Shut Up and Do What You're Told. That's a pretty rude sounding title, I guess. <laughs> but there's a reason why I say it. There's a reason why I have, have that particular title. So uh, anyway, welcome to the program today. I'm uh, glad you're here. and I think I have a, a pretty interesting uh, a topic uh, uh, for today. I wanted to maybe start by asking a question here. Do you ever get the sense that, that more and more you're being ordered by very serious people with very pompous sounding titles to just shut up and do what you're told? Well, interestingly, interestingly Anthony Fauci, uh, the, uh, the, the, the coronavirus guy, uh, Mr. Lockdown, yeah, he's, he was giving a, <laughs> I guess, I don't know if you, maybe you could call it a sermon. He was, this was some, a talk that he was giving at the Washington National Cathedral on Thursday, November the 12th. And where he basically said just that very thing. He he told people to do what you're told. Let me play a little soundbite here for you, and uh, you, you can see what I'm talking about. So here's Anthony Fauci. I was talking with our UK colleagues just today who were saying the UK is very similar to where we are now in outbreak because each of our countries have that independent spirit, but we don't want to be told what to do. Well, I understand that, but now is the time to do what you're told. <laughs> so there you go. There's, uh, there's Anthony Fauci. Do what you're told. Now's the time to do what you're told. Shut up. Don't question the mask. Don't question the, the, uh, the cases. Don't question the death statistics or the hospitalizations. And certainly don't question the lockdowns. My goodness. No, you don't do any of those things. Your job, be quiet. Do what you're told. So that's Anthony Fauci for you. Now, not to be outdone, Nancy Pelosi uh, herself had some things to say in a very similar vein about the election. Let's listen to, uh, to Nancy Pelosi here. The election is over. Joe Biden is the president-elect, elected with a mandate of over 78 million votes. But don't take it from me. The Elections Infrastructure Government Coordinating Council and the Election uh, Infrastructure Sector Coordinating Executive Committees said in their joint statement, this November 3rd election was the most secure in American history. There is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Okay, so there you have it. You've got Nancy Pelosi. She's coming out here saying, well, hey, the election was awesome. Everything was great. There's no problem here. And she even backs it up with some people. And I, I think they were from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, That the people that she cited there. They were saying, yep, it was the most secure election in American history. Now, you might say, well, but but Nancy, but Nancy, well, what about the 138,000 votes that appeared out of nowhere in the middle of the night in 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 Michigan that that just so happened to be just enough votes to give Joe Biden a lead in a in a state that that Donald Trump was winning handily? Or what about all those votes? I think it was maybe 200,000 or so in in Wisconsin that just like in Michigan appeared in the middle of the night and just so happened, by golly, to give Joe Biden. Just enough votes to to win the state. 
Or what about the 700,000 vote lead that Donald Trump had in, in Pennsylvania and that just disappeared? Or how about in Georgia? Same kind of thing. Had a big lead early and all of a sudden that lead somehow just vanished. And what about all the dead people that voted? And what about all of the, 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 the ballots that just got sent out to, to anyone who happened to be on the voter roll? I mean, there's nothing to be concerned about here, says Nancy. There's nothing to be concerned about here, says the Department of Homeland Security. Just shut up already. Just accept that, that Joe Biden is president-elect and get on with your lives. We're in charge now. Don't question us. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of, in, in a way, I guess if it weren't so serious, it, it might be a little bit funny. I mean, it's, you see this sort of thing. I, I saw something where Whoopi Goldberg was talking the other day, and she was telling Trump supporters that what they needed to do was just suck it up. You know, stop whining about losing the election. Just suck it up. You know, of course, this is coming from from Whoopi Goldberg, who hasn't sucked it up even for a moment in the last four years. She has never gotten over the fact that Bill Clinton defeated or that uh, that Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in 2016. And neither has Nancy Pelosi or neither have most of the other liberals that are out there lecturing Trump supporters to accept the results of what I think is a very clearly fraudulent election. And not just a fraudulent election, but I think a historically fraudulent election. The Democrats are trying to steal this election. Now, I don't want to, this, this podcast really isn't about the Democrats stealing an election. I'm just using that as one example of this this sort of very top-down, very authoritative, very arrogant approach to to government. And and of course it's not it's not just something that you hear out of government officials. You hear this out of out of uh, big shots or the big wigs or at least people who think they're big shots and big wigs in in many areas of society. Uh, take another example here. You get the same kind of thing from the uh, the critical race theory hustlers. The way, according to critical race theory, if you're white, then you are a racist. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You are by definition a racist because you are white. And the more you deny it, well, that's just proof, more proof that you're a racist. Just shut up in a minute. We're right, you're wrong, and that's the end of it. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting in that respect, or in this respect, the critical race theory is that it almost it its doctrine of the eternal guilt of uh, of whites for racism. It, it's like a, a twisted, perverted version of the Christian doctrine of original sin. But whereas original sin applies to the entirety of the human race, the the sin of racism applies only to white people in the minds of the critical race theorists. It's a hustle. It's a lie. It's a scam. But you can't argue with them. You know, and there are people who have been fired from their jobs for arguing back. You know, if if you say, well, I'm not a racist, and you say this whole thing is scammy and it's a fraud, well, you can be fired. You, know, you can be removed from your position. And people have uh, suffered job loss because of this. And it's the same thing with climate change. You know, I mean, of course, they used to call it global warming. Now it's climate change. But if you question any of the dogmas, maybe you raise some questions about the science that was done, um, the research, maybe question some of the motives of some of the people that are involved in this thing. Well, well, you're a science denier, and you're worse than an infidel. And there's no discussion about this. I mean, you're either for us or you're against us. That's what the climate change folks would say. And if you are against us, well, you're a dangerous person with dangerous ideas, and you may need to be imprisoned. 
And I'm not making that up, by the way. There are at least some people on the climate change side of things that have advocated imprisonment for people who deny the claims of the of the uh, the climate uh, climate change folks. Bill Nye is a very prominent example. You know, Bill Nye, the science guy. Uh, he's a pretty well known fellow, and and yeah, he he himself has actually suggested that if you deny global warming, you might have to be sent to jail. Uh, or take a look at another example here: the uh, the transgender agenda. You know, if if you deny that a man can become a woman or that a woman can become a man, you're in a world of hurt. I mean, there are there are people in very high level positions who have lost their jobs over this or gotten massive amount of grief. You know, even the author J.K. Rowling, you know, she's the one that wrote the the Harry Potter series, has gotten in major trouble. Uh, and received massive amounts of criticism for denying that that men can can in fact become women. And again, you know, this is the kind of kind of an issue where you know your job can potentially be at stake. You know, you believe this, you have to believe this, and if you don't believe it, you're in big trouble. So just shut up already. Or how about, you know, going back to another political example, how about Donald Trump? You know, there has been, you know, if you work for Donald Trump, if you supported Donald Trump, well, obviously you're a bad person. And as a bad person, you should be denied uh, opportunity of employment. You know, there's a, a group that was recently formed called the Trump Integrity Project that wants to make sure that you never work again. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, you know, she's a she's a good Bolshevik. And she's been out there... Um, uh, advocating that people compile an enemies list. I guess maybe she has her own enemies list. You know, if you're on that list, if you're someone who's supported Donald Trump or something she doesn't like, well, I guess she's she's going to come after you. Make sure that you don't work or maybe something else. I, I, I don't know exactly. Um, one would think maybe if she had the opportunity that it would be something much worse than just denying you employment. It was really dangerous stuff. And in the... All of these examples that I'm giving are, are things that are sometimes called a cancel culture. And cancel culture, of course, you know, that's the idea that, um, you know, that, that if, if you say something or you believe something or you write something that, that runs afoul of the woke agenda, well, you're in a big, you're in big trouble. You know, you're a heretic in the church of woke and you must be cast to the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So yeah, cancel culture, it's, it's really not a, a new thing at all. It's been around for a long time. Just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, uh, think about the movie Luther. You know, this was a movie that was from 2003. And of course, from the, the, the title of it, you can guess. I mean, it's, it's a movie about the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. And that particular version of Luther, it was, it starred Joseph Fiennes in the title role. And there's an interesting scene in that movie. Where it's fairly early on in Luther's career. At this point, he is just beginning to kind of get noticed by the, the Roman Catholic hierarchy for some of his ideas, some of his writings, some of the things he's been preaching. And they're starting to think, eh, this guy may be a little bit of a problem. And he's called before a very powerful cardinal, a fellow by the name of uh, Cardinal uh, Cogitin. And in, in the scene in the movie, he's standing outside of the cardinal's chambers, 
and he's being given some advice. He's being coached on on how to approach the cardinal. I mean, now you don't just you know go up to cardinals, hey cardinal, how you doing? You know, it's it's not like that. Um, there was a certain protocol, and there was a certain uh, there are certain things expected out of Luther when he went into there, when he went in to see the cardinal, and what he was coached to say by this individual was one word. And this, this person told Luther, he, he was very serious about this. He says, when you go in to see the Cardinal, just say one word, rewoco. Now, rewoco is, is Latin. It just means I recant. So what he's telling Luther is, okay, all of this stuff that Luther had been teaching and saying, just go in before the Cardinal and be very humble, say, I recant and all be forgiven and you can just go on and, and live your life and, you know, do your, your priest thing. And and nobody will bother you. You know, it'll all be forgotten, supposedly. Well, Luther goes in, of course, to see the cardinal. He goes in to see uh, Kajetan. And being the talkative fellow that he is, Luther just can't shut up. He can't keep his mouth shut. And he goes in there, and he gets in a big argument with, with uh, Kajetan. And, and Kajetan gets very angry with him. And I believe, if, my memory, if memory serves me correctly, I think he, he threw Luther out. So, I mean, that, that meeting didn't exactly go super well. You know, Luther did not clear his name. Luther did not say Rewoko when he went in there. He argued with the cardinal. And you don't do that. You don't do that sort of thing. I mean, that's this is like that old song, you know, you don't tug on Superman's cape. Well, Luther tugged on Superman's cape. And he got himself in a lot of trouble, of course, as we all know. Uh, and we can be thankful to God that he did get himself in a lot of trouble, you know, that he didn't remain quiet. But his his job was to go in there and to to recant, to to give up, to submit, to to say you know ruoko and 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 separate himself uh, from the teachings that he had been been giving. Not to argue with the cardinal. His job was not to argue. His job was to be quiet. Now, interestingly, the uh, the officials of the Roman Catholic Church generally, um, apart from Luther, had set up a lot of uh, barriers to protect themselves. You know, they were a lot like today's arrogant politicians and government bureaucrats. And since we're talking about Martin Luther, I thought I'd give you another example from Luther. Uh, this is from something that Luther wrote. It's a, a letter called uh, To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. And in this letter, Luther used, uh, there's a famous illustration he used. He talked about three walls. Now, the walls he was talking about here weren't literal physical walls. It was a, a figure of speech, a way of speaking. And, and what he says is that Rome had erected three walls to protect itself from any kind of criticism, any kind of questioning. And let me read the passage here for, uh, to you. Quote, the Romanists have very cleverly built three walls around themselves. Hitherto, they have protected themselves by these walls in such a way that no one has been able to reform them. As a result, the whole of Christendom has fallen abominably. In the first place, when pressed by the temporal power, they have made decrees and declared that the temporal power has no jurisdiction over them. But on the contrary, the spiritual power is above the temporal. So when Luther's talking here about the temporal power, of course, he's talking about the civil government, civil magistrate. So maybe, I don't know, the, maybe the, the a king or, or some, some elected official or appointed official, some, some public official, maybe argues with the church and says, hey, you know, uh, there, there's a legal issue here and we're going to challenge what the, what the, uh, the church is doing. 
And, you know, the, the attitude of the church was, well, you don't question the Pope. You don't question the cardinals. You don't question the bishop. You don't have any power over us to tell us to do anything. We have the power to tell you what to do. We have the power to ask you questions. You're accountable to us, but we're not accountable to you. That seems to be Luther's thought here. And Luther continues. He says, in the second place, when the attempt is made to reprove them with the scriptures, they raise the objection that only the Pope may interpret the scriptures. So maybe you try a different tack and you say, okay, well, I'm going to, going to say, well, you know, the Bible says this, but you, Pope, are saying that. And I disagree with this. You know, and the Pope, you know, the Roman Church, the magisterium, they're going to come back and they're just going to say, well, you know, okay, you know, we're saying that and you're saying this. Well, you don't have any business questioning what we say. If we say that, then you have to believe that. You're obligated to believe that because we have the right to interpret the scriptures. And what you're doing is you're bringing your own private opinions. And you need to be quiet. And you need to obey. And just like, just like Anthony Fauci said, you need to obey. You need to do what you're told. I guess that's what Fauci said. Do what you're told. Believe what you're told. And don't ask questions. And in the third place, says Luther, in the third place, if threatened with a council, their story is that no one may summon a council but the Pope. So you can't, you, you can't uh, bring in a, a church council and bring in bishops and cardinals and, and other big shots to you know, debate a particular theological point. That's something only the Pope can do. You, know, you as, a, as a private person, you can't do that. And so there, there's really no way to reprove, rebuke, or, or change anything that, that the Roman Catholic Church teaches or does. Now, these are the three walls that Luther talked about. They're irreformable, uh, the, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church is. They're irreformable. Now, the, that kind of arrogance, this, this kind of sort of top-down, do-what-you're-told mindset, didn't even start with Rome either. It went back well before that. And we can see that even from the New Testament. There's a, a famous passage in the New Testament, one you're probably familiar with, where the disciples are arguing among themselves, you know, who's the greatest is, is what the, the subject of the argument is. And let me read that passage here to you, and then we'll talk some about it. This is from Luke chapter 22, begins in verse 24. Now, there was also a dispute among them, talking about the, uh, the disciples, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, he being Jesus, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, who is, the gr is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs is he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. So let's break that passage down a little bit. What we see here is Jesus making a very sharp contrast between the kings of the Gentiles on the one hand and Christian people and the way they act on the other hand. Now, what does he say about the kings of the Gentiles? He says on the one hand, they exercise lordship over them. He's talking about, you know, they exercise lordship over the people. Now, this is the New King James translation. I really like this translation here because the, the Greek verb that's translated exercise lordship 
literally means that it, it can it's kuriadzomai and it, it literally means to you know to act uh, as as a lord to act as lord and master this 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 idea and we speak that way in english right you know we talk about well i don't like so and so he's very arrogant you know he he lords it over me or lords it over people you know he you know maybe his his money or power or authority or fame or something like that and, and we speak that way we speak about lording things over people and and that's the way the kings of the Gentiles behave. They they lord it over people. They're very arrogant on one hand. On the other hand, though, these very same kings like to be called benefactors. Now that's an interesting word here, benefactors. Let's talk about that for a moment. In in Greek, the word benefactor, if you translate it into Greek, is is the word euergetes. Euergetes is the way you say that in Greek. And there were a lot of a number of kings in the Greek speaking world, uh, and this goes back from you know Alexander the Great on up to the time of the New Testament. A number of kings from this this vast area of of Greek speaking peoples, the whole area that that uh, that Alexander the Great conquered, many kings had as a as, as a title, Euergetes, you know, so and so Euergetes. Because they wanted to be known as a benefactor. Now these are very arrogant men. They they really didn't care, have a lot of regard for the people they governed or ruled. Maybe would be the right word. But they wanted to appear to be benefactors. They wanted to appear to be these great uh, philanthropists or humanitarians or something. And and so they took this title to themselves. But it was an act because they actually really just exercised authority over people. And then Jesus contrasts that with the way the disciples, the way Christian people are supposed to act. You know, that that Christian people are not to, who are in positions of authority, not to lord it over their fellows, but they're to serve them. And this is the passage, this is where we get this whole idea of government as servant, of, uh, of, of servant leadership, maybe in things, of, you know, in areas of business or in the family or in other areas. You know, the, the government officials are not there to, to lord it over the people. They're not there to, to bilk the people and, and to, to use them as a, uh, as a way of getting rich, but they're there to serve them. They're there to, to protect their liberties. This is where we get the idea of government as a servant. And, of course, that's something that, that didn't really begin on a large scale until the time of the Reformation, you know, when, when the gospel of, of justification by belief alone was, was rediscovered by Martin Luther and, and, and believed by, you know, pre, widely preached and widely believed um, throughout the, the nations where the, the Reformation came. It changed society. Not only were people saved, you know, and and, uh, and uh, forgiven their sins, and and uh, brought into a, a right relationship with God through the Mediator Jesus Christ. Not only did that happen, but it also changed. It also changed society. It didn't just change individuals; it changed all of society. It changed the organization of society, and where you know, where you had very arrogant, very sort of top down officials, all of a sudden the government had became responsive to the people because because that that's the way government became came to be viewed. You know, government wasn't Lord and Master, but government was a servant to the people. You know, Christ used himself as this example. You know, he says, yet I am among you as the one who serves. Well, if Jesus Christ is one who serves, you know, who is, um, you know, a mayor or a governor or, or, or some other public official, you know, who's he to say, I'm not going to serve the people? I mean, if, if Jesus Christ serves, surely a government official, uh, you know, a town councilman, should serve as well. 
And so this idea was applied to government. And it's something that came about through the Protestant Reformation. Now, kind of to, to bring that back to what we were talking about originally, how does that all relate to cancel culture? Well, cancel culture, and, and what I hope you, you've gotten out of some of this, is that cancel culture is not a new thing. It's something that's been around for a very long time. It's something that was uh, put aside in the West because of the rise of Christianity, because of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now what we're doing is we're seeing a return of that. And the reason we're seeing a return of that, cancel culture, is because Christianity is disappearing from the West. So this idea that, you know, shut up, sit down, do what you're told, you know, this is just a, a recurrence of, of an older form of government where governors... Kings of the Gentiles lorded it over people. In to kind of to the point of the idea of of Christianity disappearing and, and civilizational collapse. John Robbins, writing in a, an essay called "The Religious Wars of the Twenty First Century," said, "The West has been in collapse for more than a century. The biblical theology that created Western civilization five hundred years ago has all but disappeared in the West." And you know, and that's the reason for the collapse. Now, he wrote that back in, in 2006, and if his words were true in 2006, which they were, they're even more true today. Uh, that's actually one of my favorite essays uh, from John Robbins. I'm going to post that in the, the, the show notes. If you've never read The Religious Words of the 20th Century, I, I strongly recommend it to you. It's, it's, it's really I, – I love John Robbins' work. I love all of his work. But that that one to me is, I think, one of the really. Uh, if I had to pick out maybe a few of the really what I thought were his absolute best writings, I would certainly include that in it. I mean, it's 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 an exceptional essay, and, and if you haven't read it, please check it out. In a similar vein, uh, John Robbins was writing in in the foreword to Gordon Clark's A Christian View of Men and Things, and he made a very similar point. He said this, quote, A Christian view of men and things presents the argument that the West is disappearing because Christianity, on which Western civilization was built, has already virtually disappeared from the West, end quote. So again, here that, here's that same idea, that Christianity created Western civilization, and as Christianity has vanished, Western civilization has vanished. And what do they say? I think there's that term, nature abhors a vacuum. So you have, you have this collapse of Christian civilization. So something's going to rush in and take that place. Well, what you're seeing is just that old, you know, natural uh, arrogance coming back to people who are in positions of power. Instead of having this Christ-like idea of, of uh, government, of people in authority being servants, you have people coming back in who like to lord it over the people. Uh, people like, say, Nancy Pelosi, people such as um, Anthony Fauci, they love telling other people what to do. But that's just man in his natural state. That, that's just the way, as, as people, we are naturally. And it's, it's when we're regenerated, when we're brought into Christ, and and we begin to understand the we begin to look at the world through through Christian uh, lenses and, and not through the lens of of natural man that we begin to ha- accept that idea of of servant leadership. But left to our own devices, you know, you would never see this. I mean, you know, this this uh, the idea of of government as a servant did not occur in a non Christian setting. 
And there's a reason for that because, you know, natural man does not, does not accept those things. You know, that's the work of God. And uh, John Robbins, he, and this is going back to his writing in the, the Forward of a Christian View of Men and Things, John Robbins said this, he said, the collapse of the West can be viewed as the West's fatal choosing of non-Christian philosophy and not Christ. So, and, and this goes back probably at least in, well into the 19th century, where you began to see this, this rise of non-Christian philosophy and this rejection of Scripture. And it's because you have this rise of non-Christian philosophy and you have the West basically turning its back on Christ that you have the return of this cancel culture, this, this old, this uh, sort of older version where you know, the kings of the Gentiles rule, you know, lord it over them. Yeah, and, and we're getting back to that more and more. And this is why more and more you're seeing this sort of top-down, arrogant, you know, you know, listen to what I say, obey what I tell you, be quiet, and don't ask questions. That's why you're seeing this more and more. It's, it's amazing to me how much this is, has changed, even in just the last few years. You know, it's, it's amazing how much more of this is, is evident in, in public life. And, and these were just a few examples here that I've, I've thrown out for you in, uh, in Fauci and in, in uh, Nancy Pelosi and in the climate change folks, uh, in, in, in some other, the, some of the other examples that I had given. So anyway, that's about all for the today. Thanks very much for listening. I really do appreciate that. I really appreciate you supporting my work. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to get this podcast posted on my blog. That's lukeslucid.me. So if you want to check it out uh, there, you can go to the blog. Uh, when you're on the blog, I do have a, a donations um, a link set up there. Uh, it's it's handled through Stripe. It's it's a it's a WordPress blog. It's it's in the the uh, the uh, plugin that they use the, the the donations link that they use is through a, a firm called Stripe. Uh, if you like this podcast, if you like the work that I do, I'd encourage you to consider supporting uh, that work. I mean, it takes some effort to put out these podcasts. Takes an effort to to write things. So uh, if you do have uh, if you are so moved, if if you feel that that that's something that you want to support, I, I certainly would uh, appreciate uh, any support that you can give. I'm also going to be posting this to the Thorn Crown ministries website and i encourage you to check out thorn crown ministries thorn crown ministries it's a it's an interesting uh, uh website it was put together by a couple of friends of mine uh tim shaughnessy and carlos montillo uh, they're the ones i think that kind of drove that whole thing uh, but there are a number of us who are contributors over there tim kaufman has uh written and done podcasts there uh, sean garrity has written and uh has uh, certainly written for them. I believe he's been interviewed on some podcasts. Hiram Diaz has done some work there. I think Ryan Denton has done some things there. And these are all scripturalists. These are, are people who um, have uh, advocated or appreciated and and uh, uh, read the works of, of Gordon Clark, of John Robbins. So if you enjoy scripturalism, if you enjoy some of the work that I do, I think there's a good chance you'd enjoy the work of some of the other contributors to Thorn Crown Ministries. So I'd really encourage you to go check that website out as well. Uh, also, if you'd like to, you can subscribe to my podcast you can, on uh, on um, on uh, Apple Podcasts. I keep wanting to call it iTunes, but it's not iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcasts. So if you'd like to subscribe to my uh, the uh, my podcast feed you can can do that through Apple Podcasts and uh, I'm trying 
<laughs> Lord willing, I want to be able to do one of these a week. I, I said I was going to do that earlier this year, and I kind of fell off. I got busy with some things. But uh, Lord willing, I'm going to be able to do some uh, some regular podcasting here. And uh, if you like to subscribe to my feed, you can do that through Apple Podcasts. Well, that about wraps it up for today. Thanks so much for your listening. I really do appreciate that. And until next time, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's Word. Good night, everybody.